Hello, friends, and welcome to Something to Talk About, a podcast where different people come together to talk about the Word of God and the various ways it applies to our lives. This season, we are talking about the book of Habakkuk and what it looks like to practice faithful, unconditional wrestling with God. I'm Amber Barrett, and joining my co-host Aaron and me in conversation today are Erica and Alan Martin. And Erica, you get to start us off by telling us a little bit about your and Alan's story. So Alan and I met on Summer Leadership Project with Campus Outreach. So we went after our junior year that summer. It was both of our first time going, and we met on that project. I wasn't really involved with Campus Outreach beforehand, so I didn't know anybody there except for one person because the girl who invited me went overseas that summer. When I got there, Alan had like shoulder-length long hair. What? And for the first week you're there, you don't have jobs. It's just like your intro week. And then when we went out to go get jobs, Alan, all of a sudden when I saw him, he was not recognizable because he had shaved his head or buzzed his head. So I just knew Alan as the kid with the long hair who shaved his head. And then we ended up volunteering together at a VBS that summer, met, became friends. We both went to Georgia College. So when we got back to campus, we started dating, dated for about a year and a half. Then we're engaged for a little bit. Both came on staff with Campus Outreach, moved to Augusta. And now we've been here. Well, I don't know how long we've been here, but we've been married for almost nine years in November. And we have two kids. And I don't know if you want to add anything else to the story. Yes, you do. You want to tell us why you had shoulder length (laughs) hair? Yeah. So I've had shoulder length hair twice. Both times I cut it by shaving my head and both times I both regretted that I cut my hair and also agreed that I looked way better without the long hair. (laughs) I've just had different phases. Did it represent something to you, your long hair? Like, was it a statement? It was a bet the second time. (laughs) Alan could either not shave, not cut his hair for one year. I forget what I got if he cut his hair, but if he didn't cut his hair and kept it long for a year, I had to type out his book as he dictated it to me wow that hasn't happened yet but he did keep his hair for one year so i guess i'm still on the hook for that one she's technically a wife and employee oh my word (laughs) what book is forthcoming we need details uh not on the podcast okay okay off the record or what's the first thing you remember about erica so i think i passed erica at a coffee shop on campus but my first actual encounter with her was on the summer leadership project and the first thing i actually ever said to her was will you marry me oh my (laughs) was it another dare (laughs) and it was not a dare it was not a bet um her really good friend she was just describing erica introducing us and said three to six things that i just totally love like she likes this and this and this and this y'all you know y'all get it off great together and so kind of joking, maybe trying to be flirtatious. I don't know what I was doing. I said that, and uh, I have no idea what you said, but the next time I asked you, you said yes. So. Oh, that's that. a good story. Yeah. That's really sweet. Worked well, out well. Okay, well, we're going to keep on, and we're going to go a little deeper into y'all's bios, and as we do, we're going to answer our first things first question. So we ask that our first things first question at the beginning of every podcast. So when you answer, give a little bit more information about yourselves, and then the question that you're going to answer is, when is the first time you can remember riding on a boat of any kind? All right, so Erica, you get to kick us off again. So I'm Erica, married to Alan, clearly. We have a daughter, Jameson, who recently turned three, and then a son, Benjamin, who turns one on Saturday. And um, I work two days a week as a PA at a family medicine practice in Evans. And then the other days I stay home with the kids and do things around the house. Mainly, I feel like I just basically spend time with family and friends. All of the hobbies and things I used to have, I feel like are more so on the 
back burner, like playing sports and as much exercise as I used to do and those types of things, but enjoy still getting outdoors when I can reading puzzles. I feel like all of kind of the classic things. Um, but the first time I remember being on a boat, so I'm originally from Savannah and have had family that's lived on the water. So I feel like from a very young age, I was frequently on boats and things, but the one I don't know, jet skis like technically not a boat, but that's the first kind of memory that really sticks out is being in elementary school, riding on a jet ski with my uncle. He was being a little bit wild and he just told me, whatever you, whatever happens to me, you just hang on. (laughs) And so I was just hanging on in front of him on the jet ski and he was like swirling and doing donuts and getting tossed off and I'm just scared, terrified there, hoping that I didn't fall off with him. (laughs) So he would fall off, but you would hold on to the... I, I would sit in the front and hold on. And then he would sit behind me and he would say, like, we're going to fast. We're going to do donuts or something crazy. You just make sure whatever happens, like you hold on. And so I'm <laughs> sure my parents, parents probably wouldn't be. That. Yeah, they probably I don't know if they know. I mean, I'm sure I probably reported back to them like a little tattletale. But <laughs> that's a classic yeah. uncle move. Mm-hmm. What about you, Alan? So, yeah, my boating experience is kind of the opposite. But I'll share a little bit about myself first. I grew up in Bogart, Georgia, where I went to school kindergarten through 12th grade. That's like right outside of Athens, Georgia, and then went to Georgia College, like Erica. That's where I became a Christian, and my major was mass communication print, which today they're just called journalism. Was involved with Campus Outreach. God used Campus Outreach to draw me to himself, and then in 2013, came on staff with CO. That's when I moved to Augusta, so I've been with CO in Augusta at First Pres for 10 years now, and... Uh, while on staff, took seminary part-time, graduated in 2020. Same year, Erica graduated from PA school at MCG. I graduated from Erskine Seminary. A few other things about me, I love basketball, reading, and long-distance running. As far as boats, I know that we went to Niagara Falls and that I was on a cruise at some point. Made of the mist! <laughs> before, and not at the same time, um, before I was like eight or nine, but I don't remember anything. So that was more of told to me. My only like real first memory was, I was actually 18, so I guess I can't remember ever being <laughs> on a boat until I was an adult, but it was uh, Cumberland Island oh, in South Georgia. There's like a 30 minute ferry ride that you take from St. Mary's to Cumberland Island, and I've been on that ferry a few times now to just go camping. Erica's been with me once, but she said... It was horrible. Never oh, again. Oh, no. Yeah. It's magical. It is magical. Woke up in the middle of the night to raccoons scratching oh. my feet. Oh. To, yeah. Her sleeping bag, not her actual feet. Still, that's that's not very magical. That's, no. Is Cumberland Island the one with the horses? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And it's like pack in, pack out. Yeah. There's no we had to like walk. We ran out of water. Alan ran out of water. So like we had to like you walk said- seven miles <laughs> for water. It was just survivor. with mine. Oh and Alan had an allergic reaction. His face was swollen like it. Life or death vacations. <laughs> wow. No boating experience. So. And a squirrel, uh, even though he hung his backpack up, a squirrel like broke into it and stole Oh, no. Our food, and the next day taunted us by carrying around cliff bars in his mouth around where we were camping. Oh my word! That is hilarious. It was fun and full of memories, and I remember the ferry. And the ferry was the calmest part of it all. I would have to say. I love the two different vantage points there. <laughs> um, okay, so the first time I remember being on a boat, multiple memories seared into my 
probably frontal lobe because I would go <laughs> skiing on probably a boat that was not really strong enough to pull. I mean, it was we were little kids, so I guess it could pull little kids. So we're skiing, and it's Lake Mayers near where I grew up. And, you know, your kid, you fall face first, and you're still getting drugged behind the boat. You're like, you don't, I guess, I don't know, maybe it was just me. Didn't really think about, I should let go. And I would just have like this lake water. I don't know if you can taste it now. It's maybe still in my sinuses. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm nodding because my my story is similar, except I was boating. I mean, not boating. I was tubing. So I'm not quite as talented as you. I don't know how how many times I ever really got up on skis. But yeah, I can totally taste lake water. Uh Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. got a certain flavor to it. It does. I do love a lake water smell with boat, like mixed Mm. with gasoline. I love that smell. I don't know why. Anyway, but I love tubing because to me, it just felt like the the right amount of challenge. I might not be good enough to stand up on skis, but I could hold on to a thing. So I just, I wanted my dad to try about as hard as he could possibly could to flip me off that tube because it was a matter of pride that I was not going off. I was going to be a conqueror. And of course, my dad let me believe that for you know a short period of time, and then he would turn up the power, and inevitably, I would be dethroned off of my tube. So I enjoyed that, and I mentioned that in part because we're at a point of Habakkuk today where we are going to talk about what it looks like to think that maybe evil is just going to hold on, and yet the Lord is in ultimate control, and when he exerts his power, that conqueror really is dethroned. So that's where we're at in Habakkuk today. If you remember, Habakkuk is a prophet. A vision came to him. He's unique in the fact that instead of taking God's word to God's people, Habakkuk is speaking words to God, words that God gave him to speak in order to teach Habakkuk and us what it is to cry out to God in the midst of evil circumstances. Habakkuk's own nation at that time, God's people, they had wandered away from the Lord. They themselves were immersed in wickedness, and Habakkuk wants the Lord to make that right. And he comes to the Lord with that complaint. The Lord answers him, I am doing something. You're going to have a hard time believing it and dealing with the wickedness within my own people. I'm bringing an outside nation and they're going to conquer you in very devastating ways. Habakkuk says, how could that possibly be your answer? How could you possibly use more evil uh, to discipline the evil within your own people? That does not seem to coincide with who I know you to be in your character. And that is Habakkuk's second complaint. So in response to Habakkuk's second complaint, that's where we are today. And I'm going to start reading in chapter two, verse one, I'm going to read the Lord's answer and what he describes, the Lord describes as a vision. I'm going to get the bulk of it, but not all of it. And we will finish it in our episode next week. So starting in chapter two, verse one, And the Lord answers me, says Habakkuk, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? 
Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the wardwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities, and all who dwell in them. Aaron, why don't you talk to us a little bit about who this vision involves? All right. So just to help us look at this through some broad strokes, I think that it's helpful to think of, at least for me, when I was thinking of this, the first thing that clicked to my mind is Psalm 1. So we see the way of the wicked and where that leads, and we see the way of the righteous and where that leads. So that's obviously some very broad strokes that we're painting within. Obviously, Habakkuk is double-clicking on what it means to be wicked, how our greed overcomes us and it destroys life, how the Lord is a giver of life and he is a giver of faith and a giver of righteousness and the people who walk under his, the cover of his wing, things go well for them, even though sometimes, as we see in this um, prophetic letter, that things don't always go as predicted, but those who are walking with the Lord will ultimately, in eternity, they will have his reward. So... The woes, again, a classic feature. I feel like we're talking a lot about the classic things today. Classic feature of the prophets um, that we would see these here. And it's just a reminder that our cover is not in our wit or in our ability to win things or in our strength or our armies or all these things that we as humans can tend to look to as our security. Our strength is in the Lord and having faith in him and trusting in his goodness and righteousness towards us. Yeah, I appreciate that. I was thinking when you look at this, if you were to see the entire vision, it's bookended by a description of who is involved or who is perpetrating these acts. So obviously the closer application to that is this is the Babylonian nation in that time frame, historical mm-hmm. Babylon, right? Mm-hmm. That's who he's just, who he's talking about specifically. But of course that extends out and Babylon's used throughout scripture to represent everybody who follows that soul is puffed up, right? And they have, they are essentially their own gods. And so I love that part about his soul is puffed up because if you think about a puffed up soul and I've gotten this from Tim Keller before but it's puffed up with emptiness in Mm. a sense and so the greed is I'm constantly trying to fill myself my own way to be my own God and I'm consuming other things and bringing them into me and yet it's never enough and at the end of that woe, I mean, excuse me, at the end of the vision, it talks about that final woe, which is the idolater who, who makes something that is not living his own God. The caricature here, at least from where we're sitting, is mm-hmm. easy to say, like, Babylon is the wicked. But then we can look at it and say, it is also a warning yes. to God's people. Like, don't go the way of the Babylons. Don't go the way of the wicked. Yeah. The way to follow is through me. 
Yeah, you see that in your own heart. Is my soul puffed up or am I living by faith? And of course, this is coming to Habakkuk too and his nation is also experiencing judgment. Mm. And so it it hits close to home and it hits outside home as well. What did y'all find as you were reading this passage? What stuck out to you? What did you find surprising? What did you find interesting? What did you have questions about? Yeah, and I didn't say this earlier, but thank y'all for inviting us. Yeah. Uh, I'm really glad our church chose Habakkuk. I'm also doing the study that goes with Lamentations and Zephaniah. Uh, I love this passage and the the repeats of woe to him, woe to him, woe to him. It's reminded me that we are to love a God who's angry because it's a sinless anger. It's a righteous anger. And God is very angry in this passage. He's, uh, and that that wrath, it's, um, it's sinless. It's, uh, it's a wrath that sees the whole story. And I'm reminded of when God says in Exodus 34, he's revealing his character to Moses. And he says, I will by no means clear the guilty. And we're kind of seeing that where Habakkuk's wondering, what about them? And now God is finally saying, oh, they're not in the clear. Don't get this confused. So I really enjoy this passage. Uh, verse 16 has stood out the most to me where it says, utter shame will come upon your glory. And I've just, I'm reminded of Paul's words in Philippians 3, where he says, many walk as enemies of the cross. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. So whether it's the nation of Babylon or unbelievers today who have Babylon within, those who have not turned to Christ, they think they're living in glory right now. But it will be revealed that it's shame and it's destruction and I feel like God in this passage is telling Habakkuk, they're not off the hook. I'm the great watcher, and they will be punished. You don't often think about loving a God who's angry, but I think we're going to get more into that as we go along. Mm -hmm. Because when you make that point that it's a sinless anger, it's hard for us, particularly in the time we live in, to think, how can that possibly be good? We might tease that some more of that out as we go along. We'll see. What do you think, Erica? So the verse, I know we'll get into this more later with... A later question, but the verse that stuck out to me the most was verse 14. Verse 14, yeah, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. So I feel like I hear this verse a lot. I don't know, maybe it's through my like spiritual upbringing, kind of through campus outreach, or I don't know if we mention a lot, but whenever I hear it, I feel like I'm just always filled with more of like a lighthearted hope. And this verse definitely does offer hope still. But when I hear it, I just think about like, yes, the nations will be reached. Like every tribe, tongue, and nation people, like they will praise the Lord. And we don't have to worry that there will be a nation who will be left out. Like the glory of the Lord will reach the earth. His word will reach them and save them from the uttermost. Um, But I just feel like when I hear it, I just think of it in that lighthearted way. But here we see it's still full of hope, but it's not in this lighthearted way. It's paired with judgment. So I think that was just really when I read it, like, oh, whenever I read this or I hear it even referenced in other places in Scripture, it's just, this is like, yes, let's go. Let's glorify God by building labors on the campus for the lost world. Like, let's reach the world, but not realizing the full heaviness of, okay, this is like really what it means. I think just what you're talking about, Erica, I can't help but think of that he is angry at those that oppose him because he knows that it is our destruction to oppose him. And that is 
hopeful knowing that he has come to rescue us he has provided a way for us to come under his cover and under his love and under his goodness but it's also good for his anger to burn hot against our sin because that is the only way that we come under his cover is by receiving his provision so it is i think you're right you you do feel that tension of like anger to us is um I won't go to just say always sinful, Mm -hmm. like there's always some sin tainting our anger, but just knowing that his anger is for our good, for our deliverance against our own sin. Yeah, the the knowledge puffs up, uh, God opposes the proud, he he hates people who are just atheistic in that way of even just ignoring the need for him, ignoring he exists, and then like you mentioned, uh, making, making life about just you. Which, you know, you could sit here and say that and feel relatively comfortable saying that because you're thinking about Babylon or the world or whatever until you're like, oh, that might be me. Yep. And when you mm-hmm. think that it, it no longer, if this there's hope in this passage, there's terror in this passage, there's awe. I think it's meant to bring about all these things and because God is answering Habakkuk and they're the fullness of his answer involves things that Habakkuk has not been able to comprehend up to this point. And yet God is saying, you question my character, you question who I am and the means in which I do that. But let me show you that even in my justice, in my judgment, that I am that holy God that you also know to be your covenantal good God. And let me show you how that works out here. And so part of that we see here in judgment, but we're not used to looking at judgment. That is definitely the no-no word in our culture for sure. I, I feel that in my own self. I don't like that. I have a hard time wanting to say that. And yet what y'all are bringing out is in that judgment, the Lord is doing it for that ultimate good that resides in him and not in us. And, you know, in Ezekiel and another place I just was reading, it's like the Lord doesn't get any pleasure out of the death of, of those who are judged. And yet he executes judgment because it is very important that it burns, like you said, uh, Aaron, hot against those sins that bring destruction with them. So we do have to admit that these sins are not out there, that we have them inside of us and they work their way out. We may not say, I mean, come on, do we take over nations and kill people and build our cities on blood? We might not think that we do, but we have that same, when we are living according to our own selves, we have that same consumeristic desire to consume other people. So how do y'all see some of the sins played out that we might call Babylonian sins in our culture, in our church, in yourselves? This question is so hard for me to answer because I feel like everywhere you look around, it's just so evident that I was like, how do I even pick one point kind of to, to focus on? So I feel like a lot, or maybe, I don't know if it's just in younger, but I feel like pretty much all over um, the idea of just like living out your truth, like people just rejecting God and being so prideful that they think they can determine what's true and what's not. I don't know. I just feel like that's really evident. And I think I've just seen the downfall of a lot of people because of their pride in that way and rejecting who God is. I just feel like we're very prideful in the world to say that we can figure out what our own truth is and just completely reject God and change things that are absolute and make them subjective or just turn them in any way we want. Um, Or very greedy, which is probably like, I don't want to say I'm greedy because you know, that doesn't sound great. But like in my own heart and in the world it's just very easy to get consumed by the world like everything we see on social media is like you don't have enough or you have to do more this way and I feel like it used to be like the American dream was like just to have your house and your picket fence and like your kids but now the American dream or like keeping up with the Joneses like 
don't know, even the ultra rich, it's not like, oh, you are flying in first class. It's like you have to have a private jet. Like it's just never enough. And in my own heart, I feel like I see that in wanting to have like use the gifts or the resources God's given me to live just a comfortable life and not have to be bold or just get uncomfortable in different ways. Or I just want to have it all together and be independent and not have to rely on the Lord. Like I want to be a super mom and I want to be a great PA and I want to be a great wife and do all these things, but I want to do it with the gifts God's given me on my own. I don't want to have to turn for him and acknowledge my dependence on him or how I'm human and just can't do it on my own or know my limitations. And what you said earlier, Amber, about we love God's judgment till he's judging us. I think that's everyone's view. We want we want the grace, right? Mm-hmm. And his his judgment really is grace. In this passage, murder, greed, drunkenness, they would seem like different evils that aren't connected, but it's selfishness. Mm-hmm. And so in the world and in the church and in pastors, there is a me-centeredness. So... Yes, obviously there's a, a blindness to sin. There's there's a dead in sin that the world lives in. But when they wake up, it's no different than Christians whose first thought that morning living in the flesh is, what's in it for me today? What's in it for me with this meeting? What's in it for me with the crying baby? Uh, we, What's in it for me? And a book I read earlier this year, the author, Andy Crouch, the first sentence of the book, he says, recognition is the first human quest. And I believe that's just so true. We wake up wanting to live for ourselves. And so for me, and the church, and the world, ways that it plays itself out would be being led by an idol of control or approval. Personally, for me, I I see it all the time in workaholism, and it might seem like just workaholism, or it might seem like being manipulative in a meeting, but underlying it, it's just selfishness. It's it's a me-centered way of living. And so uh, one thing I've, I've heard that I think is, is relates to all of this is every Sunday at our church, we pray the Lord's Prayer. And when we pray, lead me not in, into temptation, but deliver me from evil, we're really praying, deliver me from me. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're seeing in the text is the world is sinful and me-centered, and Christians are too, and spiritual leaders are too, and the only difference is we uh, we take our sin to Jesus, and as, even though I see the depths of it, I also see the depths of His grace. Which we're going to get to here in a minute. But something that, as you're saying that, it makes me think that the cultural truth of the moment is if I can live for myself according to what I believe is right in whatever area it would be, then I will live my best life. And Aaron, you're welcome to live according to your truth, whatever you think that it would be, whatever pleases you, and you will live your best life. I will not harm you if I do that, and you will not harm me if you do that. But in reality, we do harm one another because that self-centeredness keeps us from loving one another. It it makes us people who end up consuming one another because we have no higher authority than ourselves. And at the end of the day, we will do what it takes to get what it is that we want in some form or fashion. So it's just a good reminder that it's not the Lord pulling something from us that is ultimately good. It's that the Lord is judging something that ends up destroying us. And in doing that, he is offering salvation. Mm Mm-hmm. Something that I thought was funny, so when I was writing, saying, like, my simple heart just wants to be great. I want to be significant on my own. I just want to make a name for myself and not blend into the crowd. So I answered this, and then I was like, let me go back and listen to George Robertson's sermons from 2014 when he preached, and his two two sermons titled 
or his two sermons that cover these verses are titled, You're Not Special Part One and You're Not Special Part Two. And I was like, well, that's humbling. I guess that was the word. Thank you, Lord. Through George, right there, it's very evident that my sinful heart is shattered, that I cannot be significant my own and I'm not special, that it's the Lord who is. Yeah. And we think that that's too bad for us, but it's so great for us. Yeah, that we're not the the thing that holds it together. Um, I resonate with all you're saying. And I love that when we're thinking of our cultural sins, it's not different within the church. Like we're not immune to living that self-centered life. And Alan, I think you brought this out. The difference is that when we see our heart orienting towards selfishness, we do have a deliverer. That is mm-hmm. saying, there's mercy here. I can show you the way forward. I can grant you freedom and show you a life that is worth living. So I feel like along that same era that you're talking about, Erica, when um, George was preaching through these, I remember going through the confessions. I didn't grow up in a, a liturgical church. So reading the prayers, the prayers of confession that we do every Sunday, were instructive to me in learning that a life, a self-sufficient life, a life in pursuit of comfort and ease, that those were sinful. I was like, huh, that's new. I didn't, mm-hmm. I, I truly didn't know that. And maybe if I knew it on some spiritual level, that was like a Sunday pursuit. It was not like a globally life worth pursuit. Like it was helpful and instructive for me to realize that my life is not all about me and I am not to be self-sufficient in that way. I'm not to pursue only a life of comfort and ease and and just instructive. I love that you said that too, because as Christians, this is a cultural moment where we are tempted to point out at others and say, can you believe that? Mm. Rather than woe is me, woe is me, woe is me. Mm-hmm. Lord help me. Yes. Yeah. That's so true. I think kind of one of our other cultural sins is the you do you vibe. I don't know. I'm sure that y'all are all familiar with that. And even Amber and I were talking recently about how my tendency is to operate in the gray, probably partly because of my personality, probably partly because of product of my culture. But it's like, I don't want to cast judgment on somebody that does feel uncomfortable. And I'm not really sure like where their heart is. So I'm not going to readily put that out there. But we see these words here towards Babylon aren't just words of judgment towards them, but God's speaking words of judgment against his own people. Anybody that stands in opposition to him outside of the blood of Jesus is going to fall under judgment. So when we think about it that way, um, why is it important to talk about God's wrath and judgment? What does that have to do with our cultural moment today? And as a believer, how do we understand God's judgment is an essential part of how we see God's glory? Like how do those knit together? Let's hear from you first, Alan. Okay. Yeah, I love this uh, idea, this reality. I think some of it is shaped by, we have a three-year-old and a one-year-old, so disciplining Jameson is is a growing reality in our life. Uh, we we want to not let her do wrong things without stepping in and explaining and loving her enough to show her things. And also, just one thing I love about Erica is she's very high on like justice, fairness. And the reason this gives me excited is because it's, it's really written on everyone's heart. So an example that I, I thought of in preparing for this podcast is we live in the South, so people love college football. Mm-hmm. Whether you're at the game or you're watching it on TV, you're going to hear someone scream, that wasn't pass interference. Can you believe that? And sports have even changed in the last few years that coaches in the game can throw a challenge flag where they're basically judging the judgment of the referee. So it's written on our hearts. We long for judgment. Mm -hmm. We long for accuracy. I love the one of the studies the church is using. It says that judgment is an assessment of someone or something. So we, we long for 
perfect judgment. And in this passage, God's glory is shown, and he's showing that he's worthy of praise because he's, he's committing a justice that is, like I mentioned earlier, it's without sin, it's perfect, and he sees everything. Nothing will go unnoticed. So it, it, it sounds weird to say that these are love letters. It's very similar to Good Friday. It seems dark. It seems how, how could good come from this? But it's God showing I'm a heavenly father who will go as far as needed to save and rescue my children from their idols and rebellion. When you bring the illustration of we discipline our children because we want to make sure that they don't put their hand on the hot stove or we want to make sure that they don't stick their fingers in their sibling's eye when they want something and their sibling has it or whatever, we're teaching them what it is to live well as a human being in the mm-hmm. world. And we want that for our kids. And when you think that the Lord is here in this passage eradicating what is harmful in order for what is glorious himself to to seep into the world like the waters cover the seas. And when you think about how consuming that is, it's wonderful. But nobody looks at that passage and thinks, I mean, come on, let's let's stay with a little bit of murder and a little bit of violation and a little bit of lewdness. Let's let's keep that. Why do we have to get rid of that? We don't like it when we see it for what it really is, mm-hmm. but we're consistently deceived that it is not that. It is not ultimately harmful. It is fine. It is good. But only the Lord, like you said, truly sees things that the way that they are and is committed more than we are to the good, to our good and to the good that he's bringing. Can I add one more thing? Yeah. I'm sorry if this was on a previous episode or if this was a sermon illustration recently. I can't remember where I heard this, but the first sermon Tim Keller gave after 9-11, he talks about all the sad things being made untrue by the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And somewhere in that sermon, or maybe it's tied to one of his books, he says that part of the glory of the resurrection and God's judgment in the last day is we will see even the hardest things that have happened. We'll look back and say, I'm so glad that's what was allowed. I'm so glad that's what unfolded. Wow, you know, he, he must really love me to have let that happen lest I live a me-centered life. It's hard to comprehend that when you look at some of those things. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard for us to separate that the Lord never delights in those things. Mm-hmm. It doesn't delight in the brokenness of the thing, but that in his glory, somehow that brokenness is turned into what is glorious. And, and I don't think we're going to be able to wrap our minds around that until we really see it. Mm-hmm. When I'm thinking about, like, how do I really understand God's judgment is essential? Like you say, like, the the bigger things are easier for me to say, yes, there needs to be judgment for that as far as, like, murderers or big major scale things. I don't like to think about it in myself and that I need punishment for my sin as well, of course. But I just, as simply as my mind was making it, just um, God's holy, and so therefore there has to be punishment for sin, and He can't overlook it. So um, I think it was in the verses maybe for this upcoming week in the Habakkuk study in Romans 1, 18 through 21, um, talking about how the Lord has revealed himself through his creation. He's revealed himself in his His glory, his power, his existence, his character. Um, and in Psalm 19, 1 talks about how um, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord and the skies as handiwork. So from the person in like the most remote area of the world to the person who hears the gospel multiple times and rejects the Lord to the believer walking with him. We're all responsible for our sin and there has to be um, punishment for our sin. And in the believer's life, it looks like we get justification through the blood of Christ. And so that sin or God's wrath there is satisfied, but then there's still God's wrath on the, the sins that haven't been atoned for on the cross. 
So I've been thinking about God's glory a lot, and I think part of his glory that we see in the garden is just his withness, which I was talking to my husband about this. He's like, what did you say? Do you have a lisp? Like, what are you saying? (laughs) Withness. He's like, oh, normal people would call that presence. I was like, (laughs) okay, you're right. But some might say like withness, it demonstrates something a little deeper, like the Lord is with us, like in the garden. And there is just something about his glory, like the essence of who he is, is a God with us, God. And so we see that fully and beautifully in the garden. We get a glimpse of it on Mount Sinai as Moses' face comes down glowing. Like he says, show me your glory. And Moses comes down and he's glowing and he's been with God. So it's like we see a reflection of that glory. We see his glory tabernacling in the temples throughout the Old Testament. And then when Jesus comes, he tabernacles among us and he's housing in flesh God's glory. Like he's with us. He's showing us his glory. He's answering Moses' prayer. And then I think we see God's presence tabernacling in his people today. So I think that we see his glory in the spirit-filled community of the church and our hope of his glory to come. So I've been a little excited about God's glory recently. And but what y'all are saying is that there's no way that we can experience that witness or God's presence without judgment. And as believers in Jesus, we know that his our judgment has fallen on him. And that's the only way that we get to experience the presence of his spirit and the hope of glory to come. I mentioned this to Aaron and Amber, so for those of you listening, something that's really encouraged me as I've been reading Habakkuk and Lamentations is an album by one of our previous worship leaders, Kirk Sowers, the band's The Woodrake Sessions, and the album's called From the Valley to the Golden Shore. There's just so many songs, Grace Will Prevail, All Will Be Well, From the Valley to the Golden Shore, He Will Deal Bountifully with Me. Those songs, I feel like, are just a theme of... Habakkuk, where it looks a certain way, but Grace really is behind the story. I really love the album, too. Erica and Alan, thank you both for joining us today. Listeners, we hope you will join us again next week. Let us keep you company while you're doing a lap at Costco, get us some samples this weekend, or while you're picking up the toys off the floor. Becca Richardson and Kelly Orr will be joining us next week to talk about Habakkuk 2, 18 through 20. We hope you'll listen in. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian wife she sings It is the Lord who rises With healing in His wings When comforts are declining He grants the soul again A season of pure shining To cheer it after the rain